0: Hey folks, welcome back to the Virtual World Podcast. I'm your host and software engineer, Ty. This is episode 11, and I will be interviewing Richard Feldman. Mostly, I'll just be asking him some questions about his journey as an individual, programmer, and speaker. I'll also be touching on Elm, his book Elm in Action, and some current events. Today's music was once again provided by Plasmario. You can check them out on soundcloud.com slash plasmariel. That's P-L-A-S-M-A-R-I-E-L. As always, please enjoy the conversation.
1: (laughs) We make that joke at work all the time. Like whenever we're using some piece of software and it crashes, we're like, wasn't implemented in Elm. For sure.
0: Okay, I think you missed the uh, missed that first bit, and I think some other people did too. So let's let's let me jump back to the beginning here. Sure. Um, my name is Ty. I'm a software engineer. This is the Virtual World Podcast. This is episode 11, and I am here with Richard Feldman. So uh, he's one of the gurus of functional programming, which I think was his intention, and uh, I think you're doing a great job at it. So we'll we'll get into that more as um, as time goes on here. Uh, but just to start, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Do you want to maybe introduce yourself a little bit?
1: uh sure i'm richard feldman i've recently learned that i'm a guru <laughs> uh i i honestly don't see myself as a guru but i i guess i can i can say what what my involvement in functional programming has been um i've been speaking about it for several years uh actually my first talk was functional programming and coffee script but mostly i'm known for my elm stuff so i'm the author of elm in action from manning publications um given a lot of elm talks so at elm conferences um at at Other conferences um, about Elm, Um, the author of Elm Test and Elm CSS and the Elm JSON Decode Pipeline library. Um, So I I guess I've spent a lot of time with that. Um, At work, I do Elm on the front end and Haskell on the back end. So I, yeah, I I guess I'm uh, certainly I can claim to be experienced with functional programming, if if not a guru. (laughs) Well, I think the guru part comes from the fact that you are like
0: actively talking about it and pushing it. And I mean, if one of my goals now can be stated as learning the history of programming, the evolution of languages, and where things are going next, certainly you're someone to look to for inspiration and to sort of like, I don't know, maybe maybe jump ahead on that path rather than having to grind it out myself.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, Um, if you're interested in history of programming, I I really have to recommend Hillel Wayne. Uh, He is definitely more well-versed in history of programming stuff than I am. Um, But uh, I, I I, I guess I can say that I dabble in that
0: yeah i mean i think it's been kind of the key feature of a number of your different talks um i saw the most recent one i forget the the organization that streamed it but it was really really good this was about a month ago
1: oh uh philly ete that might be it yeah was was it it called uh, the next paradigm shift in programming
0: yes that was it that was it yeah
1: that was uh philly ete our local well (laughs) as local as you can get in the pandemic uh our local um tech conference in philadelphia where i live
0: That's awesome. Also, just I want to reflect here on sort of the evolution of the podcast and how it's kind of changed so quickly from what I expected it to be. It was originally kind of an AB. I would sit down with a just a software engineer who I happened to know. And we would talk about things and try and like push ourselves forward and maybe figure some things out and try and like understand the universe and all that. And, um, you know, it was like on the horizons for like the end goal, like this might sound weird to you this probably will sound weird to you but i've got like tier lists of people that i want to talk to and like (laughs) you are b tier and a tier is like rich hickey and alan Kay. so hopefully that's hopefully that i don't know uh, thanks (laughs) um, (laughs) yeah hopefully that's a morale booster um so uh not that not that the podcast is like that huge or that i'm some sort of uh uh person that's like great to talk to but but anyways let's move on i I, there's one thing i want to ask you about before we get into the functional programming world and and whatnot and uh, as someone who's a bigger guy and struggling with weight and health and stuff like that i noticed in one of your talks way back in the day that you kind of like made this joke about how you used to be a lot bigger but i really want to know i'm not going to ask like how'd you do it because the answer is you drank a lot of water you ate good and you worked out like i get it um my question is how did it impact you as an engineer
1: Huh. Um, did you on? find that
0: you had more energy? That you were like making more strides in your craft? Like, did it have a, a big impact on you as far as that goes?
1: You know, th- this is going to be the the dumbest, most crass answer, but like, it, it really is the first thing that comes to mind. Is that the biggest way that it impacted me as an engineer is that now I can work on airplanes because previously I didn't have enough room physically to like open a laptop. Um, like, there's like my belly was in the way. And I just could not get work done, but now I can. Uh, And so now I'm very productive on planes and before I used to not be. Um, And maybe it's somewhat revealing that that's the first thing that comes to mind, because I know that there's this kind of cliche that a lot of people say of like, you know, you lose weight and you feel like you have so much more energy and and this and that. Um, Maybe it's just because it's been so long now. I mean, this was like 2014 when I lost a lot of weight um, that I just don't remember it anymore. But I guess I just don't I don't emotionally feel that i i don't know that 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 changed for me that i had like a lot more energy or a lot more this or that um i I guess maybe i did but uh i don't know it it just if someone were like do you feel like you had more energy i'd be like no except i feel like i should say yes because that's what everybody says um for, for what it's worth i i do have and i i've on twitter a couple of times i've talked about like like how i did it and stuff but um Uh, I do have a piece of advice, which I think is somewhat controversial, but I'll say it anyway, which is I recommend. And and the thing that worked for me is ignoring exercise and focusing exclusively on diet. Um, so I've actually like, I mean, you use the word struggled. I've also struggled for most of my life and only recently, you know, in the last like six years been successful at, at losing weight. And I've tried every combination of diet and exercise diet without exercise exercise without diet, and neither diet nor exercise. And what I have found is that if I'm successful at dieting, then I can lose weight. If I'm not successful at dieting, it does not matter how much exercise I'm doing, I'm going to maintain or gain weight. And losing weight, like dieting successfully is very hard, and exercise makes it harder. So I recommend starting with just focus exclusively on diet, don't worry about exercise at all, And then later on, uh, you know, after you have successfully lost weight, then think about exercise or, or maybe, you know, I'm not going to say like, don't exercise, but I think it's a huge distraction. Um, like when you're already trying to do a really hard thing. And so like after I had successfully, so in 2014, I lost 110 pounds in in that year. And the, the way that I did it was just by focusing on diet. And then in 2015, I ran a marathon, um, largely because a friend of mine said, you know, you can run a marathon in like six months from no training, which at the time I couldn't like run around the block. But I was like, hell yeah, I lost all this weight. Let's see if I can do it now. Um, and it turns out he was right. Uh, but anyway, I, this is obviously not a podcast about weight loss, but um, I think that's a controversial, like, I don't know if you can call it a hack, but like it is it is definitely true that exercise is important for health, but I think it uh is it makes an already hard thing har- harder when you're trying to specifically lose fat, and um there's uh research to back that up like uh exercise really doesn't correlate super well with like successful weight loss, despite what everybody says
0: Um, okay, well, let's move on uh so I do appreciate you kind of walking me through that uh I guess the next step of that is before we even get into sort of like where you're at now um something that I'm really interested in is like how you got there. Um, okay. so when it comes to your programming history, how did you, what started, I'm assuming at some point there was a spark where you realized like, maybe I'm not doing this right. Maybe I need to look the <laughs> better stuff. And you started looking around and I'm thinking that maybe you found some talks, maybe you found some books, uh, maybe you found some people that inspired you, some ideas that inspired you. Could you, could you talk through that? And maybe the beginning of that process?
1: Oh, sure. So, um, I mean, I, I, definitely know like who the inspiration was. It was my friend Deech. Um, he's, he's given a lot of like awesome talks. Uh, Aditya Siram. uh, he, he basically, um, he's D D D E D double on Twitter, um, and in GitHub. Um, so we, I used to live in St. Louis and we happened to work together and, uh, he and I had like similar lunch habits. So we would go to lunch together and talk about programming. And, um, he really opened my eyes to like the world of functional programming. And, um, he would talk about like Lisp and Haskell and he, he's sort of a connoisseur of programming languages. I mean, he knows like all of these like really, really esoteric stuff, like stuff where like Haskell is mainstream by comparison. Um, like, uh, like he's given talks about ATS and, uh, and like forth And, um, anyway, um, so, I really at the time uh had a pretty like in retrospect narrow conception of programming. I thought I I knew a lot, but I didn't realize how much I was missing out on, especially in terms of languages. Um so at the time I'd used like Perl, Java, JavaScript, Basic, like I, I got started on basic, um, uh C, C++, and uh probably a couple others that I'm not thinking of, like SQL, um, HTML, JavaScript, uh, And I thought at the time, I was like, wow, like I I really know a lot of programming languages. I really got this thing down. And what I didn't realize is that there's like 85% overlap between all the languages that I knew, except for SQL, I guess. Um, They're all like very, very similar languages. They're all like imperative, some amount of object oriented, I guess, except C. Um, And and they all kind of do things in pretty similar ways. Um, And so the idea of functional programming and sort of like just taking away, especially pure functional programming and, and taking away these... Sort of things that were very familiar to me like what if you didn't have mutation what if you didn't have side effects um that was sort of a, a new concept i never really thought about that or like lists. you know what if, what if you could make macros trivially i i just never really thought about these things because i didn't really have any awareness that they existed um i just knew that you know the languages that i'd known up to that point and my curiosity had never really led me to um explore further uh so he sort of opened my eyes to all of that. And and not only did he open my eyes to it, but he was sort of like pitching me on like, here are some of the benefits um, of these things. Like these are, these are real. So I became convinced that it would be worth my while to learn more and to investigate and to sort of try them out myself. And um, one thing led to another and eventually Elm ended up being the first like pure functional language that I tried. Um, it was going to be pure script, but I I'd sort of fallen in love with like reacts uh, virtual dom. And at the time, <laughs> just as as luck would have it, um, Elm released a virtual DOM implementation before PureScript did, so I decided to go with uh, to Elm as the first thing that I tried. Um, and I I think I was pretty lucky to have done that because uh, even in retrospect, now that like having like seen how Elm and PureScript and Haskell have sort of like um, evolved, I I like Elm the best of those uh, a lot. So <laughs> it was just dumb luck that I happened to try that one first. Um, I don't think there was a causal relationship there. I don't think it was like, I learned it this way and this is what's familiar. I think Elm just really fits my style pretty well as far as like what I look for and, and like in uh programming language now that I've learned a lot more about them.
0: That's awesome. Um, so with that in mind, what is kind of your mindset now? I mean, I think you've talked a lot about it in your talks, but uh, but I'm assuming that you think kind of pure functional is the way. My my biggest question there is something that I think I'm not sure if this is a phenomenon but it could be a phenomenon. Um take Rich Hickey as an example. He Sure. He had um he had these ideas about like the flaws with current programming languages so he started working on closure. Then he goes down the path of closure for I don't know 15 years or whatever as you've gone down the path of Elm for and Haskell for you know 6 years 7 years or whatever it's been. Yeah. And um my question is is there a is there an ability for people to get sort of um to kind of put put the the functional blinders on uh, a little bit, maybe um, as in are there things are there other things that maybe are interesting that haven't uh, that kind of haven't come over between the two styles because both styles kind of have their blinders on about uh, everything else already.
1: That's a good question. Um, to, th- I
0: guess to label them, when I say the two styles, I mean specifically pure functional languages like Elman Haskell, and impure functional languages like Clojure and I guess other stuff, but mostly yeah, Clojure. Yeah.
1: Sure. Um, okay, so I think probably the easiest way to answer this is to just uh, maybe describe like where my mindset is right now after, like I don't know, the things I've learned, the experiences I've had. Um, so the reason... so. Uh, you mentioned like some talks that I've given about history of uh, programming languages. So the one that's like the most widely viewed, which I was super surprised, like blew up. I actually gave at a closure conference. Um, uh, they, uh, they, I'm not sure why they invited me since I'm not a closure programmer. I guess they wanted some variety, but um, this is in Helsinki. And uh, I, I gave a talk entitled uh, why isn't functional programming the norm? And then which is... Is a great talk by the way. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, so the reason I titled it, that was because uh, after a while, I just couldn't answer that question for myself. Um, I I genuinely did not understand. Like, I'm not saying that all programming should be functional programming and and specifically pure functional programming. I just couldn't understand why, like, why isn't that the default? And like, when you deviate from that, it's for a specific reason. Um, Whereas like in in the world we live in, it's everything's object oriented by default. And if you deviate from that, you do it for a specific reason. Like you, you have some... You know, good reason for not choosing an object-oriented language, or or to program in the object-oriented paradigm. And I think um, for
0: like ninety-eight percent of people, the reason that you would not use object-oriented approach is because state management is really, really, really hard, and yeah.
1: uh, um, and
0: it's just extremely complex in the OO world.
1: Right. So, so I mean, that's um, <laughs> so you mentioned the the, the other talk, um, the the next paradigm shift in programming. So the the ETE people, um, like when they were asking me, you know, they're like, "Hey, do you want to come speak again this year?" Um, cause previously I actually, the, the talk you referenced, um, where I, I, <laughs> I, I made a joke about my, my weight. Cause there was a picture of me like from, I don't know, 2014 or something where I was much bigger. Um, and, uh, it was, I think it was, at, well, it was definitely affiliate et where I first gave that talk. Um, that was called from rails to Elm and Haskell. Um, yes. That's the one. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so th- they asked me back and I, uh, they, they said like, you know, what do you want to speak about? And, um, they said, we really liked your, uh, your talk, um, about, uh, why isn't functional programming the norm? And I said, well, I actually had like three hours of material for that talk and I'd cut it all the way down to 40 minutes. And I was still like talking at top speed just to get through it all. Just like that, (laughs) that subsection, I have way more like to say on that subject. Um, and so they're like, do you want to just do like a B side of that? And I was like, sure. So this was like that, that talk was basically like another chunk of like material that I'd learned in the course of researching, um, the, the talk in Helsinki. Uh, close your tray. So anyway, um, where I've kind of ended up is thinking that uh, most programming that most people do is generally speaking, um, not super performance constrained in, in practice, which and by which I mean, like, we don't need to be doing direct memory management to make our application successful. Um, like we don't need uh, C++ or, or C. Uh, if we use them, Maybe they can run even faster, but for most applications that most people are building, uh, current levels of performance are acceptable. Now, granted, there are plenty of people out there who will say current levels of performance should not be acceptable because um, our hardware is capable of so much more. Like everything could feel instantaneous, um, but it doesn't because you know we're, we're using Electron and things like that. You know, these like layers and layers of software that that we really. Uh, don't necessarily need but but use because they're convenient um, but setting that aside I mean certainly it's the case that in practice like the the performance needs are not such that you're uh, we're optimizing for like maximum performance and getting the absolute most out of our hardware so given that that's what the the sort of constraints are the constraints are pretty loose in terms of performance um, clearly garbage collection and like automatic memory management are, are really good for productivity um they're like not having to deal with segmentation faults and with uh like you know use after freeze and all these problems that i remember from my my c and c plus plus days like way back in the day um that that means that we can write software faster and it, it won't break as much so that's all very nice okay but within that world of like garbage collected or, or automatic memory managed programming um where are the next wins? Like what, what are the things that really help us out in terms of, you know, making this software that is, you know, runs fast enough and is reliable and we can sort of get it out the door quickly. Um, because every, every organization seems to be, uh, putting a pretty significant premium on being able to ship stuff quickly. Um, and the answer to me is the next best thing after garbage collection seems to be, uh, some, one of the following, either it's, uh, modules or it's type checking, or it's um, pure functions everywhere, and I, I'm not trying to say that I think all three of those are like at the same level in terms of their impact. I think it, a it depends on the project, and b it's it's probably on average like they're they're pretty different. Um, but it, I think the implementation of those really matters. So modularity is is a really good example of this. So. Uh, if you're writing in C, like everything's in this giant shared global namespace, and it's pretty much impossible to make it, have a concept of like public versus private and to create guarantees around like, okay, I know that this code cannot be messed with by this other code. Um, it's like really hard to know that, uh, which means that it's hard to sort of like get a chunk of the program in your head if potentially like, you know, every other part of the program, every other file in your, in your entire code base is like reaching in it and messing with that. Um so this is something that I talked about in, in both of those talks is like the idea of modularity being really important um these days we all seem to agree that like modules in in the sense that uh um, they <laughs> they were originally introduced in modula, the programming language modula um are a good thing. but we also have this separate thing that's like encapsulation, which is kind of like well, it's modularity, but just for objects uh which seems to be to me kind of redundant because we already have a good form of modularity in modules, and all the languages that just had um uh, encapsulation have now added module systems anyway. So I think modularity is very important. Um, type checking. I mean, I know that Rich you would disagree with me about this and he's on a list, so I can't, you know, uh, <laughs> like argue <laughs> with him about it, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and I will, but, <laughs> um, I mean, this is one of these things where, um, I, I, I think two things are true, which may sound contradictory. And, and yet I believe both of them. One is that I think the, the big picture debate between static Type checking and dynamic type checking is very overblown and just kind of silly Um, because if I were to rank like programming languages, I would most want to use on some sort of unknown problem like in the dark. They're like, all right, you're going to solve this problem. I'm not going to tell you what it is. What language do you pick? Um, I I would not have a straight line ranking from like all the statically type checked languages uh, first followed by all the dynamically type checked languages. Um, It would be a mix and and closure would be high on that list, even though I've never used closure professionally. Um, but like, I, I think that's just, it's one of many factors. And the other thing is that I think that how the type checking is implemented is huge, is, is incredibly important. Like when I was a Java programmer, professional, like enterprise Java programmer many years ago, um, I, <laughs> I, I <laughs> you know, I, I, I really feel like I should take it off my LinkedIn. Cause I still, I mean, literally today I got email spam saying, do you want the, do you want to come work on this Java thing? Um,
0: definitely, <laughs> definitely not.
1: not the answer was no um, but uh, well the answer was actually report spam but um, right. the the, uh, the the type system that Java has and the, the way that it does type checking I felt at the time was did more harm than good um, it, it felt like it was always getting in my way and I wasn't really getting much out of it and when I switched to doing more dynamic languages professionally it really felt like a breath of fresh air it felt like a, a big improvement um, and at the time I remember and this is like, I don't know, 2010 probably. Um, someone who was not a programmer was was talking to me and asking me about. Um, I don't even remember how we got on the topic, but uh, she was saying something about um, like what's the difference between like you know, the, well, like what's a big debate in programming? And I brought up static versus dynamic, and the, the analogy I used was I said, well, static types are like training wheels in that uh, once you know what you're doing, you don't really need them anymore. Um, and that was my feeling having just, you know, spent a lot of time with, with Java and and being happier having done like Perl and JavaScript. Um, Actually,
0: um, click an here. Yeah.
1: See what you see, think of this.
0: I, I definitely hear myself coming to your mic, though.
1: though. Uh, well, I'm wearing headphones. I'm not sure why that would be. <laughs> uh, okay, hang uh, on. I, I'm going to try one thing real quick. Sure, sure. I'm going to unplug from the microphone and plug in here. All right. I don't know if this is any better, but.
0: Uh, let's see. That's a little better, actually. Yeah. Um, with that in mind. Uh, oh, OK. Interjection. Yes. Uh, so I was I was talking with this software engineer named Adam Davis, and he talked about this. He's been programming for 30, 35 years, something like that. Uh-huh. And um, he was talking about sort of these like sine waves of interest that go through the sort of pop culture mainstream section of, of programming. Um, And so, like, for instance, he said back in the day, everybody was like, static types are insane. They're so good. They're like, that's how you have to program. They make everything better. And then JavaScript and Ruby came around, and everyone was like, static types are garbage. Like, we need to throw that away and just use (laughs) dynamic typing. And then nowadays, people are like, oh, TypeScript is amazing because static typing is way better than dynamic typing. so it's kind of interesting to think about that where there's like these waves of uh, of interest that kind of wane over time and basically all it really takes is people to like be doing something long enough to uh kind of forget why they enjoy it or why they like it or why they need it and get frustrated with programming before something new comes up and i think maybe that's going to contribute a lot to uh people moving over to functional programming
1: i mean that might that might be true in terms of trends um but I, I I think that in both static and dynamic worlds, uh, there's a really big difference in terms of how APIs and how type systems are designed and how they're enforced. Um, well, really
0: quick, keep in mind that this isn't specifically about uh, static. This is That's just an example, but it's like oh, sure. this idea that trends sort of come and go and people kind of like go back and forth over time.
1: Yeah, I mean, but I'm I'm really not talking about the trends. I mean, just in terms of like, you know, what if I were trying to give someone good advice who's like just starting out in programming, um, you know, what would I say to them about static and dynamic typing? Uh regardless of trends, I would still say uh it really depends on the language and I wouldn't I wouldn't try to give them a a broad like, you know, static is better than dynamic. And yet, <laughs> uh one of the three things that I listed as like major productivity benefits, um, like one being modularity the second one was uh static typing and the reason i think that is that a really well done static type system i think uh basically can sort of bring more benefits as i see it than the the, the best most well done dynamic type system uh, or, or dynamic language um the advantages of dynamic systems seem to be more that they can do they can do more things at runtime um they can like do like hot swapping of like uh implementations and things like that um uh, perhaps more easily although i don't i'm not i'm actually not totally sure if that's true um or if that's just kind of a coincidence of history but certainly historically they have been better at that like you get like erlangs hot reloading um i mean closure developers will talk about um like sshing into a machine connecting via repl and just like working right in production from the repl which is not something you hear about from
0: um static languages uh I think there's actually another interesting part about that. I do have this kind of like slated in my my notes for uh, later in the conversation, but uh, I wonder if maybe uh, WebAssembly is a problem that's kind of already been solved by like data as code in Lisp. where you can just sort of like have this code and send it over the wire as data, and then it can be processed and evaluated as code. And uh, people are kind of like, oh my God, WebAssembly is gonna change the world. <laughs> it's like, that's a thing that already exists. I'm wondering, is it, is it that people didn't like see the power of it uh, and WebAssembly is gonna like finally bring that to light? Or is WebAssembly actually not gonna be that great? Uh, and like the, the lack of people catching on to the data as code across the wire thing in the Lisp world is kind of proof of that.
1: Well, I think WebAssembly first and foremost is about performance. Um, I mean, the, like whether or not you want to think of it as data as code, like uh, what something that you know every everybody from Elm to TypeScript, you know, Closure are all doing today is compiling to JavaScript and using that as a format to to deliver applications to people. Um, The downside of that is that if you're trying to do something like a, you know, triple A video game, uh, JavaScript, you know, even asm.js is just not fast enough to do that. Uh, you really need to have the kind of levels of performance that I was referencing earlier with like direct memory management and things like that. Um, if you want to, you know, (laughs) play uh, Fortnite or whatever, I was going to say quake, but I I didn't want to date myself, but then I, you know, did anyway. But, um, if you, if you want to play some modern triple A game in the browser, um, which is something that, you know, people want to deliver because the browser is the most successful application delivery platform in history. Um, but I think that's mainly what the appeal of WebAssembly is, uh, is the performance. Um,
0: I think it's two-pronged. You've got WebAssembly, which is, you're, you're right, it is about performance. And, and I, I forgot about that. But the uh, I guess what I was more thinking about was like WebAssembly system interface, this idea of like WebAssembly out of the browser, WebAssembly is kind of like a virtual com- compilation target. Got that other systems can impl- implement and people are like, oh, man, that's going to change. So, I mean, the sort of like the go to statement about like, oh, why this is why WebAssembly is going to be awesome is people are like, oh, the guy that made Docker said WebAssembly is going to change the world. <laughs> and that if, if they had WebAssembly, I wouldn't have had to make Docker. And I think that use case is less about performance and more about portability and safety. And if you look at uh, I mean, maybe not the safety part, but like the portability part, data as code kind of like it solves that problem. But I, I do think I am firmly in the camp of like it is an awesome thing and it's not because it's a uh, it the data as code across the wire thing didn't take off in main popularity mostly because lisp is very strange and and kind of esoteric nowadays not because the idea is bad
1: oh uh, yeah i mean that, that could be um i mean to to play devil's advocate i mean WebAssembly. if you want to think of it as data as code it's it's code that nobody would ever write <laughs> it's like really not designed to be written like web is not designed to be handwritten by humans so it might be a little bit of a stretch to, to think of that as like similar to list where list i mean you really can take code that you know written by humans send it over the wire and and kind of expect it to work um yeah but i think when you send it over the wire you're just hoping that it
0: runs so like
1: with WebAssembly, you can
0: write your code in c++ compile it to WebAssembly, and then send it over the wire to be run somewhere else
1: that is true yeah i mean uh so, I to me, I I would think of that. Um, uh, that reminds me of uh, Java's initial promise. Like their tagline was "Write once, run anywhere." And you know, I mean, uh, it's it's really kind of like "Write once, run anywhere." You've got a JVM installed, which is also true. Of WebAssembly, right? Write once, right. run anywhere. You've got you know WebAssembly, um, you know, installed, uh, or or Wazzy or whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, I, I I think it'll be. Definitely interesting to see what people do with it, um, you know, wh- whether it's for performance in the browser, whether it's for portability and, and security outside the browser. Um, I, I think it it it's definitely there's definitely an appeal to being able to do things in that way. And the fact that it, it uh, has been focusing more on backwards compatibility with existing languages than Java did uh, where they had their own, you know, separate byte code. And, and this is like, no, no, you, you really can't compile C++ to this or Rust or whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, d- definitely seems like it's, uh, promising, but you know, based on, uh, how Java turned out, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna hold All my Java, breath, but, yeah. but it'll be interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Honestly, I, I fantasize daily about a universe in which Clojure was not implemented on the JVM. Um, I guess there's always the CLR and there's Script, and Script is really interesting. Um, the CLR version of closure is is not not interesting I don't think but uh, yeah. that's uh, that's how it can run in the .net ecosystem for those of you who who aren't familiar.
1: Yeah, Rich actually has some talks about that where he he mentions um like uh, the JVM is actually much more conducive to like dynamic languages like it has a lot of facilities at the bytecode level for dynamic programming uh, whereas the CLR does not. It's a lot more hostile to that um but anyway, neither here nor there.
0: <laughs> right,
1: right. And it kind of has that same thing where like um
0: it's not it's more of a something that targets compiling to something else, right? Closure compiles yeah. to the JPM, closure script compiles for the for, for the browser for for JavaScript. but right enough of that. Um, I think uh, one thing I want to talk about is sort of like the ideas of functional design because I think most people get caught up. I, I feel like one of the problems with the functional programming world is that when it's talked about, people come away with this like very hazy view of what it is. Yep. and uh, totally recently agree. I recently interviewed Eric Normand, who wrote a book with Manning. Oh, I should talk about Manning, um, called Grocking Simplicity," which is still in their Meep Early Access Program. Uh, which uh, Elman Action, your book, which is awesome, by the way. Um, also, was in the Early Access Program for a long time. Yep. And uh, actually, I I partnered with uh, with Manning. I'm I'm an affiliate with them. If it's it, I mean, you can totally veto this if it's not okay with you. But I reached out to them, and they earlier today they sent me five uh, codes for free copies of uh, Elman Action. Cool. So, And of course I already own it. So if anybody's into, <laughs> uh, into that and wants to get the book, just let me know in chat, or, uh, I guess reach out to me on Twitter at TYTR underscore dev. Uh, if you're, if you're listening to the podcast version of this later down the line, um, and uh, yeah, I can send you one of those copies up until, of course, they're gone. But uh, <laughs> Manning is awesome. They seem really involved, and they've uh, they've been really great to me. Also, if you're listening and you're interested, I have a podcast. Uh, I have a, a discount code with with Manning for thirty five percent off all their stuff. It's a uh, Pod V World twenty. So make sure to use that. Sorry for the uh, the plug, but
1: um, no worries. Um, yeah, so
0: one of the things he talks about is sort of. I guess I want to get your version of this idea of like data processes and effects. Data like separating functions. your code into those things, like modeling data ah. as sort of like decrease the complexity of your processes and your functions, your pure functions by putting as much of that energy into your data modeling as possible.
1: Uh, Sure. So where to start? Um, I think the, fundamentally um i i forget who said this quote but um i guess a couple of people have said it but i i definitely agree with like once you get your data structures right a lot of other things sort of fall into place um in terms of like your algorithms and like what you're what you're doing with your data structures whereas if you get the data structures wrong uh it's kind of hard to go the other way around so i'm definitely um a big fan in general across paradigms of starting with thinking about data structures and trying to figure out your data model and like how you want to represent what it is you're trying to do um, once you've started there an interesting question arises which is uh what do you want to do with that data um how do you want to organize like you know you're going to have like let's say i make i've just made a data structure to describe some important part of my program i'm going to do that several times because there's going to be several different important parts of my program um how do i want to organize the functions that are going to work um, on these data structures so the old procedural way of doing it is to say those are decoupled from the, the functions or procedures that you're doing. Um, you just have data, and then you have procedures that operate on that data. Uh, and that's it. And that's also what functional programming does. Um, object-oriented programming goes in a different direction and says, actually, we're going to couple, uh, we're going to we're gonna create this thing called methods, which is where you couple the uh, procedures to the the data. And, you know, again, without going too far into a history tangent, depending on who you ask, if, like if you ask Alan Kay, it's all about message passing. If you ask um, Bjarne Stroustrup, it's all about, like, uh, Simula style. Um, well, I guess Simula did some of that too. But anyway, um, so I actually don't think that um, functional programming and procedural programming are particularly different in terms of like how they relate functions and data. I think they're kind of the same. Um, and and I, I got to come clean about something here. So when I gave the talk, why isn't I'm, functional Everybody perk up. When I gave the talk, why isn't functional programming the norm? Um, there was a section that I very consciously decided not to get into. Well, well I guess I cut it for time, um, which is like, what is functional programming? I'm going to be honest with you. I cannot define functional programming for you. I don't know what it is. Uh, oh, I, can't. <laughs> I can define pure functional programming for you, though. That's where you're you're writing in a style where every function you write is a pure function. That's very easy to define. Um, I'm a big fan of pure functional programming. Uh, I also am a fan of closure, but I can't really tell you why at a paradigm level. Um, I I think it's like something about API design and about immutability as a default and about um, simplicity as a value. Uh, I don't know if any of those three things are unique to functional programming though. Um, Like immutability, but as a default, you could say that's a functional programming thing, but that's literally true in Rust. Like In Rust, which is an extremely imperative language, Every single value is immutable by default. You have to opt into making it be mutable, which is exactly what OCaml does. And in fact, they even use the same like let and, and let mut like the uh, type stuff that, that OCaml does. Um, so uh, I don't think immutability is a functional programming thing. I also don't think the idea of like organizing procedures and data separately is a functional programming thing. That's just the procedural thing. And actually it's like OO is like what made it weird by making them be methods. Um, and... Uh, and simplicity is certainly not like a functionally like a, a thing that's unique to functional programming. So, yeah, I mean, I can define pure functional programming, no sweat, but all other types of functional programming. Um, so Evan Shaplicki, who created Elm, uh, he says he sees it as a uh, actually I can give you two anecdotes. So he says he sees it in terms of lineages, um, which is to say, like, the functional programming languages are the ones that are sort of like based on like they're descendants of um uh, like the ML family of programming languages uh, or, um, or maybe LISP. I actually didn't ask him about that. I mean, ah, now, now I want to, um, but uh, See, like,
0: if anybody wants to say that my podcast is not having an impact, I just potentially spawned a really heated debate between, <laughs> uh, between Richard and Evan. So there you go. That's my
1: contribution to the uh, ecosystem. I don't know if it'd be a debate. I, it'd be more of a, like, I'm curious to hear his perspective on it. Um, but uh, I mean, I'll ask him next time I talk to him, but um I think the uh certainly the ML family of programming languages is functional programming. So that's standard ML, OCaml, Haskell, Elm, all those languages, F sharp. I think those are all like we can we can safely say functional programming languages, even though o- among those only Elm and Haskell, um PureScript also are uh are pure functional. Um but, uh, if you get into like, okay, why is OCaml a functional programming language, but Rust isn't, uh, good luck, you know? I mean, that's yeah. like, uh, good luck making an argument other than the lineage argument. Um, so Erlang is a really interesting case. Uh, so the anecdote about Erlang is, uh, so you could say, oh, of course, Erlang is a functional programming language, or you could say, of course, Erlang is an object-oriented language. And the funny part is, um, Joe Armstrong actually said this, like one of the co-creators of, of Erlang, um, said this in an interview, uh he said he always thought of erlang as a functional programming language um and uh, and in fact he wrote an article entitled like why oo sucks um and just saying like he he doesn't like oo at all um and his advisor later on said you know i always thought of erlang as an object oriented language and he was like what and basically, the guy made his case. He's like, well, yeah, I mean, you, you have these things called processes, which are essentially like these stateful things that you spin up and then you send messages to and from them. That's like object oriented programming, you know, according to Alan Kay's definition. And Joe Armstrong was like, oh, man, maybe I maybe I made an object oriented programming language. Um, and from Evan's perspective, Evan was like, yeah, of course. I mean, it's not. It's not one of the descendants of the functional programming languages. It's not based on them at all. They, they they did their own thing. So you know, it's certainly not a functional programming language. Whatever it is, you know, it's it's not that. Um, it, what's, I, feel I, feel like
0: I feel like I would, like I would, I would, feel, I would feel bad, bad saying, that saying that
1: to him. him. Like like imagine coming well, I mean, tomorrow.
0: Like oh, it's actually object oriented.
1: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I mean, uh, I I mean, I guess if you're his advisor, you can do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to ask him, but unfortunately, he passed away uh, a couple years ago. So uh, rest in peace, Joe Armstrong. But um, yeah. I, so um, like I said, I I don't I can't define functional programming for you. And, and so I actually I mean, I, I, it's one of those things where um, there's this sort of like uh, Venn diagram in my mind of like, well, these things count as functional programming and these things don't. Um, I think I can define a functional programming style as one where you avoid mutation and you avoid side effects. Um, that seems to be what people mean when they say uh, functional style. Um, like if you're writing functional style JavaScript, it probably means that you're avoiding mutation, you're avoiding side effects. Um, that's that's how I first did functional programming as I saw it. Um, like I said, my my first talk about it was functional programming in CoffeeScript. I was just doing it you know, stylistically. Um, and I guess another way you could think of it is that really what I was doing when I was writing CoffeeScript was like, I'd read a tutorial on Haskell and I was like, I want to try and follow the same rules that Haskell does, which is to say no mutation, no side effects, um, and see what that does to my code. And, I, and lo and behold, I actually found that it improved my CoffeeScript code quite a bit. Um, this was back in the, back in the day when coffee script was the, was a big thing. Uh, but, um, yeah, so I, I don't think that, um, I think it's kind of hard to claim that, uh, like there is one definition of functional programming that everyone agrees upon. But at the same time, I also think it's hard to claim that nobody knows what it is. I think there's this kind of like hazy, generally agreed upon thing that like these certain languages, many of which have a Lambda symbol in their logo count as functional programming languages. And then these others don't. um, And that generally functional programming should be avoiding mutation and side effects. Um, But beyond that, I mean, yeah, it's kind of hard to say. So when I say that, I think uh, like the functional style is getting more popular, I think I can back that up. Um, And I think that that will result in someday uh, the languages that we call functional programming languages becoming more popular. But yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of hazy areas and and sort of uh like coloring outside the lines to to try and uh, <laughs> nail down exactly what that means.
0: And I think I think some people are bringing aspects of it into other things, like uh, as a closure programmer, I'm very familiar with using spec to um, sort of like classify the structure of my data without having to instantiate that data. So like interfaces versus classes. And I've definitely heavily brought that into the typescript code base at at the uh, at my my full-time job, which um a lot of people there are sort of like, uh this is awesome like this is the way to do stuff and they're like oh typescript is amazing for giving us this and i've, I've been doing this for six years i don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> um, with all of that said um i, I want to ask the question how do you handle state in a functional programming language but uh, before we get to that i want i want you to out yourself a little bit so that most people know that functional programming is not like perfect my question is this say you design a database schema and you decide that you did that incorrectly and you need to update it how do you deal with migrations in the uh functional world this is just like a very concrete example of a problem that everybody has across the board and i want to see kind of how the pure functional programming world uh, takes uh, like deals with that issue
1: well database is very stateful I, I i to me i mean a database and like functional programming are like orthogonal i don't i don't think those are really um like i i don't I don't know what it would mean to say like I have a functional programming database if that makes sense. Um, what
0: I mean to say is, well, Datomic—that's an interesting uh, thought there. But um, my my question is, I guess, more from the, the perspective of the code base that's consuming the database. Like, let's say you've got a you've got a uh, data model of some it's of some kind. I'm assuming, and I've done very little functional programming, so keep that in mind here. Um, I'm assuming at some point you're defining the fields of these things at some point, right? With that, is that not correct? Sure. Yeah yeah so what happens when um what happens when i guess that changes and how do you how do you correlate those two issues like we need to update the Got database it. to be in the new schema and we also need to update the code to reflect those changes
1: sure so um okay so i want to i want to give uh, an answer and then like sort of a follow up that i think uh i don't know is is maybe more helpful than than a direct answer is so the direct answer is um i would do that in the same way that i would for example in a you know pure functional programming language um restart a server which is to say i would view this as an effect that i need to run um like the database is this external stateful thing that lives outside my program um, in the same way that a server is a external stateful thing that lives outside my program if i need to issue a command to say like restart the server um that's not like a you know a uh, that's not any different from like doing an HTTP request or uh, writing the standard out or or any of the other, you know, effectful things that we end up doing um, in programming. So I would just, you know, issue a command to the database saying like, hey, you know, update my schema. Um, I'm assuming we're talking about like a, you know, typical relational database, Postgres, MySQL, something like that, um, or, you know, uh, well, <laughs> something that's not schemaless I suppose. Um, so I, I would do that in essentially the same way. And then as far as like uh, changing my data model, um, I would say that the answer to that depends on, uh, how much I care about backwards compatibility and whether I'm like doing the, uh, like, if I want to, uh, support like messages coming back from the old data model, like queries that may have been in flight, like if I'm trying to do a hot upgrade or not. Um, and I don't think that aspect of it would be any different than like in a, in a functional style than what I would do in any other language. Um, so I think, I think, um, maybe a more helpful way to describe it is, um, so I I would say that uh if I'm ranking all my languages in terms of most to least favorite my number 1 favorite language is Elm and my number 2 favorite language is Rust um which is not at I all functional um but uh but I mean which has actually a lot of overlap with like the ML family of programming languages um like the original Rust compiler was written in OCaml um there's a lot of OCaml type stuff in Rust um and uh but but ultimately it's it's very Imperative, there's for loops and you know a- a- any function can run any number of side effects, and so actually like comparing Rust and Elm to me is actually pretty instructive. Like so, let's let's set aside the borrow checker because that's a very Rust specific thing and it's it's a whole can of worms. Um, but let's say that I wanted to uh, write write some something that's like going to change something about a user. So I've got a user in my in memory um, and I want to change their email address because you know my user has updated their email address. So uh, in Elm, I would write a pure function that takes a user record, uh, and then I would take that record and essentially uh, use record update syntax, which will give me a new user record that's exactly the same, except I've changed one field, and then it'll return the new one. Uh, so semantically, at least, I have never mutated in place the the user that I was given. I just returned a new one, and now I'll use that one from now on. In Rust, I would more likely... Uh, Write, write a function or a procedure that um takes a user and then just reaches into that memory and just changes it in place and i don't need to return anything because i'm like i just did it you know just keep using the one that you've been using and and you're good but there's nothing stopping me from writing it in the elm style in the rust way i could just take the user uh record or, or in rust we call them structs but uh take take the user struct and uh clone it and then change the clone in place and then return the clone totally do that too
0: what's the term for that there's a word for it. is it isomorphism it's like a function that takes a type and returns the same type but typically does so by creating a new
1: version of that i actually have not heard a term for that but it, let me know if you find out because uh that would be a cool thing to be able to name
0: <laughs> okay. yeah yeah we will do
1: um but actually like this exact example comes up kind of early on in, in Rust in, in the tutorial, because the way that like uh, the borrow checker deals with these things is kind of different. Um, but they actually give this as an example because they're like, look, these two are equivalent. Like they're doing the same thing. There's, there might be a difference in terms of performance, but, um, semantically it's like either way you're like, you know, outside this function as, as someone who's like calling this function, it's like, well, I called this function and then the email address became updated and that's what I cared about. Um, so, semantically, they're accomplishing the same thing, but in terms of refactorability, in terms of maintainability, in terms of, like, my ability to understand this function, they're very, very different. Because in Elm, whenever I look at a function, um, the dependencies of that function are, are basically just, like, right there in the type. It's like, look, the only thing that this function can look at is... What's in scope? So that's, that's the arguments. And then if it's if it's like a closure in the middle of a um, of a, of another function, then it can use whatever's in the enclosing scope. Um, and of course, you can use whatever's in the like top level scope, like global constants and things like that. Um, and then it can return a new value, and that's it. So if I'm changing that function in in Elm, that Elm function that like says it updates the user, um, uh, a user user's email address, uh, I can have a hundred percent confidence that no matter what I change inside this function i'm not going to break anybody else except for people who called me in rust meanwhile i don't know what side effects that function is doing i mean like um i mean i guess i do when i'm when i'm directly looking at it and of course this this example is a very small function but the point is that whenever i make changes to a function in rust i am potentially affecting other functions at a distance that i don't really know about or 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 don't intend to change um i can make this sort of like effects as a distance thing is a source of bugs And it's a source of bugs that just does not exist in pure functional programming like there are no effects at a distance it's it's all local effects that's all you have and it's a guarantee and so uh often i talk about functional programming but i mean to me pure functional is really in a category of its own like when you have every single function can be changed locally with 100 confidence that it's not impacting anything else other than like other functions that are directly calling it and the only way that it's affecting those functions Is it's giving them a potentially giving them a different answer back. Um, I mean, I refactor my Elm code way more than I refactor my Rust code because I've had this experience in Rust where I'll like reorganize things. I'll, I'll move them around and they're still returning the same answers as before. But now something is subtly getting mutated in the wrong order. Like, even though every single function independently is returning the same answer, there's some of this action at a distance going on that I didn't realize was going on, even though I wrote the code. Like, it, once it gets big enough, it just becomes impossible for me to keep it all in my head. You know, I've passed a certain number of thousands of lines of code. And so just the act of, like, trying to do a refactor and rearrange my code would break stuff. Like, even though it all compiled, the tests wouldn't pass anymore. And I almost never had that experience in Elm. Like, it, it's extremely rare, and it would have to be something like... um you know i i actually was changing a value that i returned and i didn't realize it um so that to me is the big advantage i i, I feel like i can articulate that advantage of, of the guarantee that if i change this function i know exactly what the implications of that it's just the callers the, the direct callers are affected and they're only affected in the way where they might have gotten a different answer it's the, it's like the bare minimum of implications for any change that you make and the the ability my ability to refactor those code bases in in pure functional languages is just unparalleled compared to like uh, there's just a bright line between pure functional and not pure functional in terms of refactoring in, in my mind in my experience, um, so that to me is like the the huge benefit of pure functional programming and uh, you do get some similarities like like some sort of similar benefits. From like subsets of things that come with that, for example, immutability. like if I am passing an immutable value to a function, and you know this is true like in in JavaScript. <laughs> to this day my in my GitHub repo, the the most starred uh, thing that I have is is this JavaScript library I wrote in like 2013 or something um, called Seamless immutable. And all I wanted was I wanted a I wanted a way to guarantee immutability, which I did by freezing things, um, uh, freezing objects in JavaScript. And and still be able to use them with normal like other helper functions and other libraries like lodash and and like in for loops and stuff, um, and that's all. Uh, uh, it's it's quite a powerful thing to be able to say, like I at least know for sure that when I pass this value to this function, it's not going to change. Like I I can still safely use that value again after I've passed it to this function and reference it, and and th- I know that that function will not have messed with it because this is an immutable value. Um, that also reduces bugs, but to me, not as much as uh, like going full hog and, and saying like every every uh, function has to be pure. So bringing it back to your your database migration example, when you have pure functions everywhere, yes, you get this great refactorability benefit um, and and like ability to understand a function just by looking at it in isolation. Like really, it's it's like a new level of isolation um, when when all of your functions have to be pure. But um, a downside of this is that. Uh, there are lots of effects that you need to do that that affect the outside world. Like, uh, I mean, uh, you know, messing with a database or uh, restarting a server or like sending an HTTP request. Those are kind of obvious examples. But um, actually, like if, if you want to talk about downsides, I mean, I think a much better example of a downside is random number generation. Um, that's not something that people typically think about as being a side effect. But it's I mean, like, math.random in JavaScript, for example, is very much not a pure function. I mean, a pure function is
0: different every time you call it.
1: Exactly, that's the whole point. Um, And so if you want to do random number generation in something like Elm, you actually, like, it's non-trivial. You actually have to, like, pass around, like, a a seed, and then, like, you know, uh, as you continue to do more and more random number generation, use the seed that you got back from the most recent random number um, operation. Now, this does have some, like, benefits once you've done it because it, it makes it means that you can like do things more reproducibly and like if you want to uh, run a test you can be like oh i can i can set the seed pretty easily um but i'm, I'm not going to say that it's easier because it's not i mean it's harder it's more work um but in my mind like the, that that uh, having to pay that price it's a very small price to pay for the the ease with which i can maintain the resulting code base and, and understand the resulting code base um so uh and and then there there are similar um functions for or or features i should say um for doing effects in general uh that that follow a similar trick to that like random number thing where like you have um like promises in javascript you know uh essentially work the same way um you you have a thing an elm called a task which works a lot like a promise in javascript or a future in rust um the only difference being that when you instantiate it it doesn't actually run the effect uh you have to like hand it off to Sort of like the, the Elm runtime, and then it, it executes the effect. Um, but I mean, if you look at effectful code, like that's doing HTTP requests and stuff in Elm versus in JavaScript um, using promises, they look basically the same. I mean, it's just <laughs> you're just chaining together, like, you know, I've got a promise, and I chain it together, this other promise, I chain it together, this other promise. Um, whereas in Elm, it's like, I got this task, I chain it together, another task, I chain it together, another task. Um, the only difference is that, yeah, I mean, it's not running it right when you instantiate it, it's, uh, it's just building up a, a big chain of tasks, which then the runtime executes. Um, so I guess, I guess those are my kind of like big picture thoughts. I I think the pure functional aspect is the biggest benefit of functional programming and, uh, and specifically because of the guarantee, not just the hope that, um, these like pure functions, uh, don't affect one another.
0: (laughs) Speaking Speaking since you talked a lot about persistence, uh, I'm sorry, uh, data structures and immutability. So so. with that in mind, I want to ask some very concrete questions about Elm, specifically for people that might know about some of these things, but they know nothing about Elm. And so with that in mind, um, I guess uh, everything in Elm is immutable, right? Yep. How are are data structures immutable, I guess is the next question. Like Uh, lists and arrays.
1: Yeah, I mean, so basically... uh they are immutable because the apis that you have for working with them uh do not give you any way to update them in place um anytime you do like uh if i have a list let's say and i want to add add a value to it um though the, the api for that is uh it'll be called like list dot add um that's actually like uh list dot um well uh without getting into terminology it's the, the point is that when you call that function that function says, "Give me a list and give me the element you want to add to the list, and I will return you a new list which has that element added to it. Um, Elm does the same kind of trick that um, closure does to make this fast, which is persistent, persistent data structures.
0: Attack. Okay, that was my next yeah. question.
1: yeah, so so like it's not when you when you do that, it's not actually like cloning the entire list in memory um, and like making an entirely new list. It's actually saying, well, I know that everything's immutable. So because I know that all these values are immutable, I can just say, well, I'm going to make a new one that's just like keep everything I know about the old one, but also add on this one extra element. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the benchmarks, actually, so so Elm is a, for those who don't know, uh, now that we're like an hour into the podcast, I'll explain what Elm is. Um, <laughs> right, right. It's, a, it's a pure functional programming language that compiles to JavaScript. Um, so we've been using it at work. We're about to cross the 400,000 lines of Elm code in production threshold. Um, we've been inching up on that for a while. Uh, and, uh, so if you look at the benchmarks, um, there's like a, this guy, um, I don't remember how to pronounce his name. It's like Crow set, something like that. Um, but uh he does all these benchmarks of like uh like react and angular and elm and like all these different like front-end systems uh elm consistently is like leading the pack in terms of performance uh which would not be true (laughs) except for these persistent data structures so this is like they'll do some task where it's like render you know a scene that has these things in it um and that'll be implemented in elm and in react and in angular and you know all these things that are have orders of magnitude more funding than elm does um and yet elm in practice you know and also elm is compiling to javascript and doing so in a functional style and yet like elm beats them out of benchmarks and that's because yeah despite the fact that semantically everything's immutable um there are other performance considerations beyond just uh you know like uh doing what what you might think of as like kind of the obvious thing if you wanted to make things immutable in uh in a imperative language like javascript or, or java or c sharp any of those
0: yeah. So is there still got to be a cost uh, for, I mean, maybe serialization or something? Is that is that something you've come into contact with where it's like, not just do you want persistent data structures, but maybe I need like undo redo or some sort of actual history for a specific value that's that's being updated, maybe a list of tasks or something. And, and not only do I want to retain that history, but I need to eventually serialize it so that I can maybe send it to the database, maybe for QA purposes or something like that, uh, maybe for a bug report. Um, or I guess whatever other reason that you might want to record the history of an object changing, how how would you handle that in Elm or I guess even Haskell? That's an interesting question.
1: I mean, it's, it's actually like a lot easier <laughs> in those languages than it is in, uh, in like imperative languages. Um, because I, mean, I think so. Yeah. I mean, the short answer is you just keep it around. Like you, you just say like uh, I want to keep around the old immutable version and the new immutable version. And as you build up more of those, let's say I've got like 30, you know, versions of this thing over time, like the the 30th version is just going to be i'm the 29th version like in memory it's going to be i'm sharing everything with the 29th version except for whatever the the most recent change was so it's going to be like sharing a lot of memory with those things as opposed to like cloning each of each of them um like there aren't going to be 30 clones there's going to be like uh 30 pointers and then each of those are like pointing to you know largely overlapping sections of memory um at least like behind the scenes As, as far as i'm concerned as the elm programmer I don't care about any of that. I'm just like, I don't know, save all 30 values and I want to access any right, of them right. at any time. And it's like, you got it. <laughs> no problem. Yeah.
0: If any of the viewers aren't uh, familiar with persistent data structures, uh, there's this great textbook. I'm, I'm just kidding. That I, I, I feel like that's the that's the answer in in functional programming. It's like, well, how do you the do this? It's like, here's, here's category <laughs> theory or Okasaki. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't do that. Uh, watch something a little bit more simple than that. That's a very hard read. Um, I, I've read it twice and I have no idea what it's about. So, no, actually,
1: um, Rich Hickey's Simple Made Easy gives a pretty good. I, I thought. Um, yeah, like, it's a great way to get it. into it. It's like, for that's sure. really not what that talks about, but <laughs> it kind of goes on a tangent and it's a good tangent if you want to learn about persistent data structures. For sure. Next question. I think a lot of people are hoping for something juicy
0: here, but uh, I'm going to go in a different direction with this. Um, will Elm ever support any other runtime than JavaScript? And my question here is not for server-side Elm, although that would be wonderful. Um, and I know everybody in the world wants that, especially <laughs> uh, especially the... Uh, the Haskell programmers that have kind of migrated to Elm. I've read a lot about that on, on Reddit and whatnot. They kind of, they really want that. But my question is more about like WebAssembly because that, I think that solves the problem everywhere. And if WebAssembly can run everywhere, then Elm yeah. can run
1: everywhere. I mean, uh, so that's explicitly on the radar. Um, so the main thing, and and with each passing year, this seems less and less likely, even though I've, I've heard repeatedly, uh, I've heard it said that it is planned for WebAssembly to ship a garbage collector. Um, so far it hasn't happened. Uh but yeah, so Evan is Did actually you... very carefully designed Elm to be able to compile Web to WebAssembly. Um and not only to be able to compile to WebAssembly, but in a way where in, in a fully backwards compatible way. And what I mean by that is like let's say that tomorrow uh Evan rewrote it so that Elm now compiles to JavaScript or WebAssembly. Not only could you switch over your existing Elm code to you know use the WebAssembly output instead of the JavaScript output. But all of your existing Elm code would continue to work, including your JavaScript interop. Um, so that's like the degree of planning ahead for that world that <laughs> he's done. Um, but uh, that, that's not really blocked on us at this point um, in the like on the Elm side. Um, it's more just that like the, so uh, a little bit of background here. So compiling to WebAssembly. um uh, it, uh, as a process means basically like okay, take all your compiled Elm code and instead of spitting out JavaScript, spit out WebAssembly. That's a big project. It's a big pile of work. But the bigger project, the bigger pile of work, is converting over Elm's like standard libraries, um, which are sort of like the the foundational primitives. So like the the basic like collections and stuff like that. Um, those use JavaScript under the hood. And so you would need to, like if you're not going to have JavaScript anymore, you'd have to rewrite all of those in WebAssembly, which is kind of like saying rewrite them all in assembly language instead of a high-level language like JavaScript, which question. is a significantly Can bigger it, project.
0: Could JavaScript be compiled to WebAssembly to then be sort of used as like a way to not have to rewrite that stuff?
1: Uh, That... Uh, maybe um it kind of depends on what they do with the garbage collector so one reason that we've been kind of well there's two reasons that we've been sort of like okay we, we need to see what they're doing with the WebAssembly garbage collector one reason is just that it's uh, for web application front ends a big deal is how big is your compiled asset sizes so elm is like famously the best at this other than svelte um it's like uh so if you look at um like the, one of the Uh, in the last couple of years, there's a blog post on the Elm website about this, but like basically there's this thing called the real world app. It's like a 4,000-ish line of code um, single page app that like people have implemented it in Angular, Elm, React, you know, Vue.js, Svelte, et cetera. Um, And this like 4,000 line of code single page app front end um, in Elm is smaller in terms of asset size, like 29 kilobytes. It's smaller than just React by itself. Like the entire application is smaller than React. Um, let alone like the entire React app, which is you know much bigger than that. Uh, was like the React version of that's like almost 100 kilobytes, as I recall. Um, but yeah, so uh, so Elm cares a lot about compiled asset size. Now, if you're going to WebAssembly, um, do you want to ship an entire garbage collector with every single application binary? Probably not. Um, that's something we would much rather get from the browser, especially considering they've said we're going to do garbage collector in a browser and it's going to share an object space between the WebAssembly and, and JavaScript, which is relevant when you're consider that um, like Elm has JavaScript interop. And so like, you want to be able to have those like be garbage collected in the same space. Um, the problem is that although it's in, it's on the roadmap for WebAssembly, assembly, it's, it just doesn't exist yet. I mean, there is no WebAssembly garbage collector. Um, so that, that kind of like it's a blocker for, for like pursuing anything like that. Um is, is finding out what they're going to do with it. Uh, and the other, the other issue there is, um, figuring out what you want to do about polymorphism. Uh, so like in, in the JavaScript world, like if you have a function that's, uh, that works on multiple different data types, like for example, a list of strings, and it also works on a list of integers. Um, JavaScript already has like built-in polymorphism features at runtime um, in its functions, so it's kind of obvious what to do there. But it's less obvious when you're compiling to something as low-level as WebAssembly. Now you have questions like: Do you want to do a monomorphizing compiler? Do you want to do like virtual dispatch? Um, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot more like complicated design questions there um, that uh, that sort of go beyond. Like another way of saying it is: um, If you were to compile to JavaScript or or like compile to Java. Uh, in either case, you're just kind of like, well, I'm going to change the syntax and that's the end of it uh, of what I'm of what I'm spitting out. Um, if you're compiling to WebAssembly because it's such a different level of abstraction, it, there's all these additional questions that come up uh, that just need answers, which in turn means they need a lot of you know design time to figure out what the right answer is. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I'm. I'm optimistic about WebAssembly. I, I think I, I would like to see it um, become a really big deal. Um, and I think that it, it is likely to become sort of a household name in the next couple of years. Um, but I think its its initial impact, at least from what I've seen, is more likely to be uh, speeding up JavaScript applications um, rather than being like a, a viable compilation target for, well, and I shouldn't say viable. I mean, like literally it could be done um, to compile Elm to WebAssembly in the same way that like they've already compiled C Sharp to WebAssembly and Blazor. Um, but but like, can it be done in a way where it's actually better than compiling to JavaScript? Like, um, and, and, and how long does it take? And what's the opportunity cost of doing that versus doing other things? Especially since one of the other lessons we've learned um, is that like people don't seem to care about like Elm being faster than everything else. Um, like which it already kind of is, uh, so like if the big selling point is like Elm compiling to WebAssembly uh, could be faster in the browser, is that something people really care about? Uh, I'm yeah, skeptical.
0: I wonder if I they, wonder would if they care, more, care more if they could also, they could also use be used for their, for their server. server.
1: Well, but but in that sense, I mean, that's that's mainly about APIs um, and like and sort of like language level. Um, support for server style like i don't know uh, things that you need to do on the server um as opposed to uh uh like what you're compiling to because i mean you can run compile javascript on the server already via node.js that's not a blocker at all i mean the blocker is just um well it's not a blocker so much as like uh, a matter of prioritization is it's like you know do do you want is is that the right way to spend your time is uh building a thing that's like just you know Elm on the server uh quote unquote um so I don't think that's really about WebAssembly versus JavaScript so much as it is about like API design and, and like how long it takes to make a, a an API that's as nice as like what people have come to expect of Elm, um, which uh, I actually think like Elm's APIs are one of the best parts about it, to be honest, like, you know, paradigm and compiler aside, like Elm's compiler is really great. I mean i think pure functional programming is excellent as i've said um but i mean to give you an idea of how great i think the apis are literally at work we use haskell on the back end but we don't use haskell standard libraries we made our own like implemented in haskell sort of like mirror of elm standard libraries because elms are just much nicer to use um so uh I, i think uh if you want to keep that like really high bar, like it took a long time for them to get this nice, um, like years and a lot of time on, on Evan's part primarily to figure out like, you know, a a good design. Um, And so to do that again for servers would be a very big project um, that, that I think is like, sort of like as Evan likes to say, he's like, look, even if we started on that today, you should set your expectations that it would, it would be a multiple, multiple years before um, like Elm on the server, you know, was released. So, yeah, I, I I think that that one's not really about WebAssembly versus JavaScript.
0: That makes sense. An adjacent issue: Have you caught wind of the Mozilla layoffs?
1: I have. Yeah. I, I mean yeah. I know I know people who are uh, yeah uh, involved in that.
0: Yeah, it's really sad. Um, I yeah. I just interviewed Steve and uh, Alex actually, who who was one of the people that was laid off. Um, Alex Creighton Creighton Creighton. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on my podcast a, a couple of weeks ago and the Rust community has like really, really enjoyed that. So hopefully that also doesn't, I mean, when you're talking about uh, the future of Elm potentially compiling to WebAssembly, depending on the decisions that are made about the garbage collector or maybe some other implement, implementation decisions, I hopefully that won't impact um, the WebAssembly it, development over the next couple of years, which it, it might, but uh, there's a lot of people on both sides uh-huh. of the fence, people that think it's going to be a huge deal, people that think it's not really going to matter too much.
1: I mean, I I will say, I think Mozilla has been very clearly the biggest supporter of WebAssembly and the the organization most responsible for driving it forward. Um, And I guess we'll find out. I mean, it's the the layoffs are at this point only a couple of days ago. Um, Well,
0: uh, when I interviewed Steve, uh, I found out, and this is something that is like widely misunderstood, I think, in the Rust community. And so it's great that I did have the opportunity to ask him about it. Um, But basically, the Rust core team has about 200 people. And mm-hmm. only five or six of them were still employed by by Mozilla. I think now Lynn Clark is still one of those. I think she might be the only one. Uh, or uh, maybe a second. There might be a second person that is still employed by Mozilla working on Rust full time. But um, yeah, the nice thing is that... Well, <clears throat> I don't think Lynn's team. on the Rust
1: core team, but... Um, or at, but, at least uh, she's,
0: yeah. she's employed by them working for Rust and Wasm and the ecosystem.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah def- definitely like she's heavily involved in wasm um so is till schneider right um i, I- i've talked with both of them and like she she and i and evan uh, and have all like talked about <laughs> WebAssembly stuff um that's awesome uh but yeah i mean uh, but also i mean i i know that she mentioned that like her team um was sort of like uh really dramatically affected by the layoffs um so i i don't want to like speculate too much i mean it's, it's it was a very recent event so i i mean i think there's more unknowns than knowns about the future at this point from outside observers like us um but i definitely think i, I it's cause for concern about the future of like uh WebAssembly features in particular like garbage collector um we'll see
0: yeah and i think I think one thing that the community knows for sure is that the executives at Mozilla are still making about two and a half million a piece each year but uh that's another thing I won't get too much into uh into that um to get back to sort of like the core point and to make sure that you get some value out of this as well because I know me asking you dumb questions probably isn't the best use of your time um oh no
1: i you don't understand like i <laughs> my wife will you're tell you you're a nerd
0: like, and you love talking about this I,
1: I i if anyone's like i want to talk to you about programming for hours i'm like i want to do that like i don't i don't need any pretense like i this like talking about programming with people is just like one of my favorite things to do in my life so anytime anyone's like do you want to come on a programming podcast i'm like yes i mean <laughs> pretty much always <laughs> and this is the crazy thing is like
0: from the outside looking in before i started the podcast
1: i would never have thought that
0: i would be sitting down talking with you uh, this is not to like glamorize you or something, <laughs> but you're someone that I've been watching talk on YouTube for years. While I'm just sort of fumbling around as like this very average, like stuck in JavaScript held developer. I mean, I've got tons of hobbies. I've got a family, so it's like after working eight, ten, twelve hours a day, do I really want to sit down and learn a new programming language? No. Like I'm going to watch a movie with <laughs> my fiance. You know, take the kid outside, you play in the sprinkler or something like that. Like it, it can it can be really hard to sort of get some uh, um to get some new perspective. And so the podcast really started for for that reason. It was just like, I think a lot of us know that we're not doing it right, but a lot of us don't have the energy or the guidance that we need to, to get to that point. And most people will say like, Oh, just Google it, dude. Like just do independent (laughs) research for 47 hours a day. You'll be fine. Um, Yeah. Right. But it's like, I just prefer having real conversations with real people, which is not to say I don't value independent research and do my own. Obviously I'm kind of like obsessed with it, but um, all of that to say, like the fact that i'm sitting here talking with you like after running the podcast for like a month and a half it's so much easier i feel like people people (laughs) view view you and other people as being like very unattainable figures in the community and it's like all i did was reach out and say hey do you want to do this
1: i mean I, i i don't know if there's like a rule of thumb you know for everybody i mean some people i know are um I don't know I, I just a lot more reluctant to do podcasts or conference talks or things like that but i mean I, for me personally i just like any anytime i go to a conference one of the main things i'm looking forward to is i'm like okay this is going to be about 72 hours of just solid talking to people about programming all day every day i can't wait <laughs> so i yeah I, I have a i'm definitely on the far end of the spectrum in terms of like i'll talk about programming forever
0: <laughs> yeah i, I unfortunately i have not been um uh, i've not been to a conference yet so that is like on my on my to do list, on my bucket list, so to speak.
1: oh I um, recommend them.
0: Yeah, for There's sure. A great way to learn things. Yeah, this next year, um, I've got like three that I'm looking at, and uh, hopefully, I can go to all three of them. But I mean, Corona, you know, who knows? Yeah,
1: um, it's very uncertain.
0: With that being said, let's talk about your book because, like I said, I okay. want you to get some value out of this. Um, sure. Uh, Elm in action, great book. I'm working through it myself right now, trying to learn the Elm language. Um, this is as opposed to uh, I guess my my options were kind of like do I learn Elm or do I learn Haskell? It's like Haskell feels slightly more unapproachable, um, but also it all it feels a little bit like orthogonal to like what I would need it for anyways, um, uh-huh. which is you know making web apps, which is my job. So sure. um, uh, I guess. The first thing I want to I want to ask about, which is something that not having used the language a ton myself, um, I, I don't have like a, pure, a perfect perspective on. Can you talk a little about the compiler as the assistant, which is something you talk about in your book?
1: Oh sure. I mean, so Elm's compiler is just like one of the most delightful pieces of software I've ever used. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, it's not just that the compiler is like really fast, which it is, or that it's, um, it's really helpful. Like it's got really friendly error messages, which it does like, uh, often in conferences. I'm like when I'm, you know, I, I'll be talking about something and I want to give people sort of like a taste of Elm. I'll just put like one of the compiler errors on the screen and be like, this is what happens if you make this mistake. And it's like, Oh, it looks like, you know, you, this record field is, uh, like not recognized and it'll like highlight it'll show you like in your code, like here was the chunk of code where you had the the problem, and it'll like highlight the thing. And it's like, um, it looks like this is similar to this other record. Maybe there's a typo and it's like, you know, here's here's the field name. Or like, you know, you, you have a type mismatch and it's like, oh, um, it looks like this, you know, this thing was was wrong. And it tries to like narrow down exactly like the the part, even if it's in this like big nested data structure, like just just what was wrong with it. Um it's just really, really helpful and nice. Uh, but beyond that, it's also that it's sort of like designed in concert with the language and its like standard library. Um so it's just like aware of even things like uh like common pitfalls that beginners might make and like Evans like hard-coded in like special things where it's like, oh, I see that you made this mistake, and it'll it'll have these little like tips that it's like not just, like, here's the problem, but also it'll have, like, a link to here's something you can go, like, go, you can read a little snippet online about, like, you know, why this error is happening and, like, what you can do about it. Um, and I think so Rust it,
0: does this a little bit as well, but Elm is, like, definitely takes it up a notch.
1: Yeah, I mean El- Elm's the gold standard. Rust, um, I mean, Rust definitely made a, a concerted effort to do this. Um, a few years ago, they actually, like, wrote a blog post. They're, like, basically, we want to try and be more like Elm. <laughs> um I I definitely agree that, uh, like Russ does a good job of this too. Um, not as good a job as Alan, it's not but
0: perfect. It's definitely not. Yeah. perfect
1: Um, but, but I like compared to, um, like I recently was like, uh, doing a, a benchmark of something that was like, uh, using a bunch of different languages. And so whenever I was like messing up <laughs> what I was doing in like, like Java or C plus plus, um, or these other language go, uh, I was like, man, these are just not on the same level of, <laughs> of error messages, like uh, in terms of helping me out. Um, but yeah, so uh, the other thing about Elm is that um, and, and, like the compiler's assistant is that because it is a uh, like, type-checked language, but and, and when I say it's a type-checked language, I mean, we didn't talk about this uh, like fully earlier, but uh, one of the differences between different type-checked languages is I, I would say like, how, how much can you trust the type system? So for example, TypeScript's um, type system is unsound on purpose. And a really easy example of this is Any. Like TypeScript has this type called any, where if you want, you can just say, I declare that the type of this function is that it accepts an any. And that means anything you pass to there, it's going to type check, um, even if it's the wrong thing. And like, hopefully I will, in the implementation of this function, be doing the right thing. But uh, uh, who knows, maybe I'm not. Um, and the fact that any exists means that not only can I not trust a function that uses any but i also can't trust that any function that i'm passing something to is not under the hood calling another function that uses any so essentially like um there's a ceiling on how much i can trust like the typescript compiler to be like telling me the truth and also like on uh how much like confidence i can get that if it compiles it's going to work um another example of this would be like in java uh, you have um, they don't have like a first class concept of nullability. So I remember like all the time when I was a professional Java programmer, I would get my code to compile finally, and then I'd run it, and it'd be like Java.lang.NullPointerException. All the time this would happen. Um, so in Elm, you don't have any, and you don't have like null at all. Um, so usually the the feeling is that once it compiles, it typically just works. And when I first experienced this, I, I just didn't believe it. I would be like, nah. Like it, it compiled and I, I'd, I'd be like, well, so I, I messed something up. Like my workflow in JavaScript w- would be like, I just, you know, refresh the page or, you know, if I had like an auto reloader, it would, you know, reload my code. And then I'd like click around until it broke. And then when I eventually couldn't get it to, you know, throw a runtime exception anymore then I, I knew I was done. Uh, whereas in it's like usually it compiles, I bring it up and it just, it just actually works exactly the way I intended normally. And I'm not saying it's hundred percent of the time, but it's like literally more often than not. Um, And like a lot more often than not to the point where, I I mean, I just now expect that out of my Elm code. And like now if, if it compiles, even if I just made a really big breaking change and I just like made a huge refactor, um, if it compiles and it doesn't work exactly the way I expected, I'm surprised. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Like I brought it up on the page and it like, didn't do the right thing. What is that? Um, And whenever I like relate this to people, like, uh there are like two groups of people who hear this. Like people who have used Elm, they're like, Yeah, me too. That's like that's yep. So that's how it is. And then people who have not used Elm are like, okay, yeah, yeah. All right, buddy, sure, sure. But like, I mean, it's real. It's a, it's a real thing. Like just ask anyone who's like spent like, you know, a significant amount of time with Elm, like, you know, does that hold up? Is that just like the normal experience? They'll like they'll consistently tell you, like, yeah, that's just like the normal. If it compiles, it usually just works. Um, so that's really like where this like compiler is as assistant thing comes from is it's like you end up spending a lot of your time as an Elm programmer, just like sort of in dialogue with this really helpful, friendly, fast compiler, um, just like kind of going back and forth with like, okay, make this change. Oh, I see that affects this. I need to go and make sure I change this and blah, blah, blah. And then once you're done having the dialogue, there isn't this like long period of uh like trying out what you made to see if it actually works, because it usually just actually works. Um, honestly, the the most time that I spend in the browser these days, like trying to make sure that my stuff um, worked, as opposed to like, you know, <laughs> uh, seeing it actually work um, is around layouts, like just strictly visual stuff like CSS. Um, because that's, you know, the compiler has like, very little to do with like, you know, whether whether things look right on the screen. Um, so it's pretty much all visual stuff. It's It's very rarely like, is the logic wrong or something like that? I've definitely, even at work, um, I I have multiple times made changes where I didn't even bring it up. I didn't even bother like bringing it up in the browser. I'm just like, this is definitely going to work. It compiles. Like I am so confident. I'm just going to make the pull request. And, if you know we have a QA team, like if QA finds something in this, like my bad, but like I am confident this is going to work, and it has never bitten me. Like every time I've done that. Now, granted, I only do that for pretty small stuff, but but like I mean, not even once have I like made a PR where I didn't even bother bringing it up in the browser, and yet like there was there was actually a bug. Um, so far, it hasn't happened. So yeah, uh, that's that's a uh, awesome compiler as assistant in a nutshell. Yeah, that's
0: yeah, that's, uh, that's that's, uh, an, uh, awesome that's feeling an awesome feeling I, feeling. I bet. Um. Um. So I guess, so I guess so to, guess wrap, to up, wrap up. I want to talk a little bit about sort of like the big picture of things. Um, Sure. This is not necessarily focused on functional programming or Elm, but, uh, and and by the way, uh, again, just to reiterate, I know there's a couple of people here. uh, I do have five free copies of Elm in action to give away straight from Manning. So uh, if anybody's interested in that, let me know in the chat and I will DM you afterwards. And also, uh, again, if you're listening to the podcast version of this, hit me up on Twitter at TYTR underscore dev, D E V obviously. And, uh, and I will send you a code for that. Um, Thanks again to Manning Publications for sending me those codes. Um, So one thing I want to talk about is, uh, one thing I really admire about you is the fact that you, like, are out there pulling out these ideas, these, like, really great ideas from people like Rich Hickey and Alan Kay, so on and so forth, but you also are questioning them. And I think that's that's probably the most difficult part, especially with Alan Kay. It's like he's talking at the million-mile level and he's just so insightful and so wise that like most of your time is sitting there parsing, trying to figure out what he's saying. <laughs> and once you finally get yeah. it, like remembering to question, it, it's like hopefully you still have the brain power to uh, to think about it a little bit more. Um, yeah. So I really admired that about you. Um, and I want to nice. talk about uh, um, innovation versus incrementalism. I know Alan Kay talks about this a lot, but I'm curious yeah. about your thoughts on this. Like one of one of the things that I think is maybe not everybody's uh, supposed to innovate. Maybe some people can only be incrementalists.
1: Um yeah, so I, I think both are valuable, but we have way too much incremental right now. Um like, like I think we're kind of like out of balance. So I, I think I, I probably disagree with Alan Kay about whether object orientation ultimately was a good idea or not. But um I definitely agree with him when it comes to um innovate, thinking innovation. that Yeah. And that like right now, um, software ambitions are, are kind of at like an all time low. Um, I think there's a lot of lofty talk about AI, but I I gotta say that like so far, like the people who I've talked to, I'm not an AI expert by any stretch, but a lot of the people I've talked to who know a lot more about it than I do, um, seem to think that what we're doing with AI is actually very incremental right now. And it's just like, the hardware got a lot better you know we have these like gpus that have like a gazillion cores and also we have companies that are willing to throw a huge amount of money at compute power to like do really impressive demos but ultimately like we're not actually like meaningfully closer to you know the singularity or anything like that um despite what everybody says uh, or, or, or what, what some people are saying um but like to me that alan Kay's biggest contribution which i don't think he would disagree with uh was at park where where he he ran this team of people who had a bunch of money to just be like let's take like five years and like like multiple years where the company's not expecting any like return on investment in that time frame just like go and try and build the future and the number of like really impactful like seismic shifts you know, that, that, that came out of that, like graphical user interfaces and like the mouse, you know, like, I mean, is staggering. And, and I, I can't point to something that's been like that. And, and not even just that was like, like that in terms of impact, but that he's even been like attempted where there was like, let's try and get a group of people together and give them enough money. I mean, to kind of bring it back around, I, I almost feel like the best modern example is kind of Mozilla, um, in a way. Uh, that's like the closest thing we've had to like a, a Xerox park type thing where, where you know, like Mozilla's um, funding of Rust, where I, I do think Rust is one of the most like non-incremental, like very serious. I've actually been saying this for a number of years. and I said this before <laughs> before I actually learned Rust, um, that I thought that the two most impactful languages were Rust and Elm. Um, Elm because it, well, uh, because of a lot of the reasons that we've been talking about, but um, but Rust because it it means that we can actually do like safe, reliable systems level programming, um, which we have not been able to say, uh, ever, I guess like prior to rust. I mean, I guess Deech might say that like you could have done it with ATS all along, but ATS is like so incredibly difficult that like it's uh, like to learn to use that. I'm not really surprised that that hasn't caught on. Um, but, uh, like there's so much code out there. Like I was like watching an interview of, um, Strewstrup, um, and he, he talks about like your car runs a lot of C and C plus plus code. You know, it has like all these computers, like millions of lines of C and C plus plus code in your car. Um, and the way that people achieve safety in there is a, like pretty slow and error prone. It's a lot of like address sanitizers, undefined behavior sanitizers, and just like, you know, fuzzing and stuff like that. Um, and b, I don't think it's as reliable as like having the level of upfront guarantees that you can get out of rust um I think rust is like a, a very meaningful step forward uh but we I don't think we've had a lot of those you know since the days of like Xerox Park to be perfectly honest um Which is and weird. I think weird
0: because I think that. Google, Facebook, Apple are all doing this in the background. Like, and they probably are putting a lot more money in and people and throwing more at it than Xerox park could have dreamed up back in the day. So it's, it's weird that, uh, I mean, nothing crazy oh, has come
1: out. Here's the thing though. Like of that group, like Google, Apple, and Facebook, I can name one technology that I think is like maybe in the park category, which is LLVM, but that's like really just Apple supporting it. Cause Chris Latner did that in college. Like he did that before he went to Apple. Um, so, I guess Clang, but I don't know if Clang by itself is that. So, I, yeah, I, I don't even know. I, I don't know if I'd say that. Cause I mean, if, if you look at like what, what's the, what are the big technologies that have come out of Facebook? I think React is a really big deal, but, um, React largely, I mean, I, I think React is a really big deal, like in the, in the front end world. Um, and I, I was like a very happy early user of it until I found Elm and then completely switched. But, um, I do think that, uh, React was not that, groundbreaking in the sense that like this approach it it was a porting of an existing approach like to the the front end world which was uh, was was also like not right it it was it wasn't a it wasn't like the first time this had been done it was the first time this had been done in the browser um and i don't want to like you know no shade on jordan or anything just um i I don't think this is like on the same level as something like llvm which you know like rust might not exist and it's you know or, or or be as successfully like Usable as a systems language without LLVM, um, and uh, so yeah, I mean, like, uh, like what what other technologies have come out of Facebook? It's like, well, uh, you know, you got uh, like. A new backend for PHP that's a lot faster. I mean, okay, like that's that's nice if you're using PHP, no doubt. But that's not really like a big, like earth shattering, you know, change to programming. Um, That's not like graphical user interfaces, you know, like they came out of park. Like (laughs) that that's that's a really really big deal. That's like a, you know, that's a milestone for all of programming. I do um, think
0: there's one really important thing that these companies have contributed and that is that they've completely shut off the valve for innovation. I think, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things now is if you're trying to build an app, your users expect a billion dollar experience for free It needs to be available on all platforms and it needs to, uh, it needs to have really high scalability, really high availability, and they're not going to pay for it.
1: You know, on the one hand, um, I guess there's two ways to look at that on the, on the one hand, like I, I appreciate um, raising the bar for like software experiences. Um, I I look at that actually as a challenge to like, you know, why is it that only billion dollar companies seem to be able to deliver that kind of experience? Like why shouldn't every, like as, as many decades as we've now had, you know, doing this programming thing and, and as great as hardware is, why can't it be normal to be able to be like, yeah, I just like over the weekend made a, a super reliable, super fast, you know, super nice looking app that runs on all the platforms. Um, and honestly, I feel like what ought to be the most challenging, like in, in a world where I, I feel like software has achieved its potential, what ought to be most challenging about doing that as a weekend project is the visuals, because like visual design is a totally separate skill set from, um, well, it's not something that you can get good at just by getting good at programming. Um Right uh but we're not there and i i think that i see that like a, as a technologist that's something that i want to try and help change It's making it so that it's not it doesn't require you know a billion dollar company to be able to do that you know on one's own as a hobby
0: um so i there, i came across this video recently that said uh that, that was interesting it's by this guy named greg dizzy if anybody wants to watch it but basically it was talking about vs code and the fact that like they entered into a market with a free product and this company this is a company that has like 180 billion dollars or something and if you look at their roadmap it's like between two and five thousand years uh, that's their runway uh, just based <laughs> on the cash yeah. that they have in their bank account um, right and so they're putting hundreds of million dollars into vs code and they've released it for free into a marketplace that um that previously was kind of run by products that had a price tag associated sublime text even though it does have a, a free version uh had some features behind a paywall and then you've got things like the idea suite which of course they have a community version but i think a lot of people i mean i even retain a license for those which i never use them but uh, <laughs> you never know um and so uh I I think that's an interesting thought where it's like they're kind of like taking over the market. And I mean there are some some speculation that like they're using telemetry and they're letting 20 million people – because that's how many people use VS Code now. 20 million, almost 25 now or something. I didn't know Um, that. They have 54% market share in the in the code editor space, which means they have uh, they have 20 million people that they're capturing data from, and uh, some people are saying they're feeding that to an AI so it can learn how to program and replace us, which is I think huh. ridiculous. But even if it did happen, at least you can have Rust now and become a systems engineer without knowing what you're doing. Uh, once you learn at least how to deal with the borrow checker. But, yeah. Uh, I think well, it's hey, if, if Microsoft
1: successfully does do that, then I will give them due credit for having made a real innovation. <laughs>
0: and they they also i mean they own uh they they i mean they own spiritually typescript and they literally own npm and they literally own github and they use they own the operating system that most i think a lot of people nowadays are using uh for their development so uh, it's a little scary like the amount of paywalls they could throw in front of it
1: yeah uh i think that is true but at the same time um i don't know i mean uh all of those things are things where people have a pretty low, well, GitHub, uh, fair enough for like private projects, um, which already are paywalled uh, in the sense that like, you Not know, anymore, I mean, work, we use now, GitHub and, well, I mean, at, at, like past a certain point, right? Like at work, we pay for GitHub um, to, you know, because we have like a bunch of users um, or a bunch of programmers like <laughs> collaborating on it. Um, but I don't know that if Microsoft were to be like, now all GitHub projects cost, you know, a minimum of this many dollars. I mean, like GitLab usage would skyrocket, right? Like it, it's not like, uh, like th- there's a lot of lock-in on GitHub. It's more just that, like, I don't know, if everything's free, you choose the one that's the nicest, and GitHub's the nicest. So there you go. Um, that's an interesting but, point, actually. Yeah, I, I and, and the same thing with VS Code. Like, uh, mainly, I think, I, I, as I remember it. The main thing that people switched to VS Code from was not Sublime Text, but Atom, which was also free. <laughs> um, coming out of uh, GitHub, now also owned by Microsoft. Um, but uh, I remember that there were like people who liked Sublime Text and stayed on it instead of switching to Atom, and then there was a bunch of people who went to Atom, um, and there were. Uh, but like when, when VS Code came out, there that was like the big split. Was like oh Atom or VS Code? Like among the like free electron editors. Um, where the plugin ecosystem is done in JavaScript, you know, which of these two are you going to choose? And over time, more and more people graduated, uh, uh, gravitated towards VS Code. But I mean, I, I still have it. in my uh, dresser, I have a, an Adam T-shirt that I got when I gave a talk at GitHub um, back in the day. Uh, they gave me some swag, one of which was I was like, oh, I use Adam. I'll, I'll sure I'll have an Adam T-shirt. <laughs> um, but now that's like kind of anachronistic because I mean, I'm sure some people literally still use Adam, but uh, not many. Certainly not Sweet. Sweet. Uh, 50 plus percent.
0: <laughs> so you're, I, I guess the takeaway here is that you're not really that scared of big tech. My my question is, let's say that you had a great idea for an app and you were relatively confident in your ability to create it and scale it and whatnot. Um, like I literally have an app that I, that I wrote that solves a problem in a market space uh, specifically for musicians, cause I'm a musician and, um, I know that it's a viable product. I know that it is something that solves real problems for real people. But the thing is, I can't release it. And the reason I can't release it is because right now I'm using Auth0 and I'm using a uh, image hosting service. And if this thing blew up to 100,000 people, I would all of a sudden have I would have a $3,000 bill a month that, and right. I have no no income coming from from the product. So, I mean, when it comes to creating new things and and releasing services nowadays with the scalability and uh, and uh, security that people expect, especially as a solo entrepreneur how do you do so without first raising 10 million dollars or something or how how do you do it without immediately selling your soul out to vc if you if you view vc is that which i don't necessarily but a lot of people do
1: well i mean that's a great question so i would say like um you know if i were somebody who's setting out and i I have done this in the past i mean i literally did start a, a a very intentionally small company it was like me and one other person and we we had like one customer you know for about a year and then we (laughs) closed up shop decided we didn't we we didn't want to um try and grow it beyond that uh but it was actually profitable by the end um but we had those same kinds of questions uh i mean i would say that uh i i don't know well (laughs) i i'm trying not to open a can of worms it's like gonna be another like you know podcast worth of content um (laughs) but uh i i would say that part of it is definitely true that having to compete with really big players is part of what makes it hard to be an independent entrepreneur um but i don't know that that's unique to software i i mean i think if i were trying to make it as a retail owner i'd be thinking about walmart if i you know or or uh target um if i were trying to make it you know as a as a small independent like person who sells um I don't know, like uh, consumer electronics, I'd be thinking about, you know, Sony and all of them. Uh, I, I think that's like probably something that you find in every industry is that like big incumbent players um, make it harder to, you know, it's hard to compete with big incumbent players in a lot of ways. But also, I mean, you you do have various advantages in your own right. So, yeah, I, I there's a lot of nuance there. Um, and I don't know if I have a short uh, <laughs> thought on it
0: yeah no worries um well i really do appreciate you coming on uh and i do you have any closing remarks do you maybe want to uh point people towards your book or or anything else
1: um yeah i guess one other closing remark would be uh if you if books are not as much your thing i also have a course on front-end masters about elm um i have a an intro to elm course and also an advanced elm course um and uh yeah they're up to date with like the latest version of elm um Actually, I guess that's not true. They're on Elm 19, whereas there's 19.1 out right now. But uh, that's a backwards compatible update. So everything you do on the course, just change the .0 to a one, and you're good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, just a plug for that. But otherwise, uh, yeah, I've really uh, had a good time talking with you.
0: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. One last quick question. I know there's probably at least a couple of people that are going to be listening to this that are wondering, uh, Is are you guys hiring?
1: Uh, no, red ink. we are not right now. Um, but, uh, if we were, I would definitely have mentioned it already. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, sorry. I sorry. I guess I should say, uh, we are hiring, but we're not hiring programmers right now. So if you know, um, somebody who's like a project manager, uh, we are hiring for that. Like there's no red ink.com slash jobs. Um, that's N O R E D I N K like the lack of red ink, um, dot com slash jobs. Uh, so yeah, uh, if you're, if you happen to be uh, or or know somebody who's looking for one of those jobs, yes, but we're not hiring programmers at the moment.
0: Do you foresee that being something in the relatively near future or is it gonna be a while
1: um that's a good question uh honestly that's i'm 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 not involved in those discussions so uh I don't want to assume one way or the other um, but definitely as soon as we are hiring I will shout it from the rooftops with a megaphone
0: <laughs> well then I will, I will retain my habit of refreshing the, uh, that website on a daily basis
1: nice <laughs> cool
0: alright folks thanks for sticking around until the end please enjoy this tune by Plasmario and stay tuned for more episodes this is Ty signing off Oh